Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14 will be our focus this morning. I want to talk to you this morning indirectly about serving God. Specifically, I want to talk to you this morning, as this text addresses, about the blood of Jesus Christ. Now let me just say, and I know this, that was slightly a test. When I was at Moody, we were in a school that was downtown Chicago, and we'd have occasion to visit different churches. And one church that I loved to attend was a predominantly African-American church in the inner city. And while they did not have a liturgy or responsive readings like you and I would be used to here, they had a responsive tone about them. In fact, there was no pastor who ever would come there would ever get away with saying the blood of Christ, and everyone would sit there like you just did. I said, I want to talk to you about the blood of Christ. Now, I'm not asking us to change into someone we're not, but I'm telling you, we might ought to think about what that means, the blood of Christ. That's the reason why you are alive spiritually, is the blood of Christ. It's the reason why you experience any level of victory in your life. It's because of the blood of Christ. It's the reason why we send missionaries forth. It's the blood of Christ. It's the reason why we claim the promises that have been given to us for our children because of the blood of Christ. So let no Presbyterian ever hear the blood of Christ and not at least say in their mind, amen. Because that's what this text is about. The blood of Christ shed for you so that you might serve God, free of guilt. Hear God's word, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of gold, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that the blood of Christ would have its effect again. It's sanctifying effect. It's cleansing effect. It's perfecting effect. That we might be cleansed of our guilty conscience so that we might serve you freely. Thank you for giving us this opportunity in Christ. Amen. Now, as you probably have noted, as we work through the book of Hebrews, there is a lot of explanation that needs to happen. Simply because many of these uh, symbolisms are foreign to us. Maybe you're new to the faith. Or like me, you came to faith later in your life and really didn't have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. And so you read some of these texts that refer back to the other 66% of the Bible, which is the Old Testament, and it's difficult to really grasp in its full depth what it's teaching. Uh, This is certainly one of those cases. So let's listen closely as the Word of God mentions things that would have been commonplace to the listeners. Remember, the listeners are still in the shadow of the temple, which is still standing. The priestly ministry, which rejected Jesus, was still going on. And Jewish Christians now were struggling a bit with, should we go back, all this persecution coming down on them, should we go back to our our temple worship? And the writer is preaching a Christ-centered sermon to remind them of the superiority of Jesus and how he supersedes and completes and fulfills all that is pictured in the tabernacle system and all that is related to the priesthood, as he is now the great high priest. But all of this is for the purpose, and let's not lose this in the midst of all this important explanation. Let's not lose that all of this is for a free service to God, free of guilt, so that you can serve God in whatever capacity he's given you to serve him, as a faithful worshiper, all the way to the very details of the calling he has for you. You can do so with a free conscience because of what Christ has done with his blood, something that is new to us on this side of the cross. The blood of Christ, my brothers and sisters, redeems and cleanses us to serve God. Let's first look at the deficiency of the tabernacle rituals in the first ten verses. Their temporary nature in particular. Verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Right away it's called an earthly place of holiness. A place of holiness nonetheless, but it's earthly. That is, it's, it's temporal. It will not be there forever. It's by design going to become obsolete. The first covenant, what is this referring to? Well, this goes back to what we uh, reviewed last week in chapter 8. The first covenant, or the old covenant. It's not referring to the whole of God's covenantal scheme, but rather talking about the particular part of the Mosaic law that required an elaborate system of rituals, ceremonies, and sacrifices. A priesthood to oversee the whole thing. We learned last week that uh, God works covenantally, and then in the midst of his covenant of grace, which is him working out this plan of salvation, there are different covenants that manifest themselves throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. But all of those fall under the category of God redeeming a people for himself, even the Mosaic Covenant, which involved the giving of the law at Sinai. But a part of the Mosaic Covenant, which really dominated their lives, was their liturgical rules, the ceremonies, the sacrifices. I mean, imagine being relatively poor and having to raise that one lamb that you do have there for the purpose of sacrifice. It dominated their lives. So when they're talking about Old Covenant or First Covenant, people would automatically know what part of God's revelation this means. This means the temple and all its institutions. Going back to the simplicity of the tabernacle when it was first given. 
This is what is referred to with regard to the first covenant having its regulations for worship in its temporary, it's an earthly place of holiness. Let's consider the tabernacle more fully. Look at verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Now, back up for a moment and consider the, the tabernacle. If you want to look at it further, look in the Exodus 25, Leviticus between chapter 12 and 16, intimate details about the building of these items. But for now, it is important for us to get a picture of what the tabernacle looked like. Now, it was a tent for sure, but the tabernacle wasn't a big tent. Outside of it, it had a huge outer, outer court. There was a system of linens about 8 feet high, and they went about 100 feet long, 150 feet long, and 75 feet across. That's 100 cubits. And a cubit, by the way, is the length of a man's hand from his elbow to his tip of his uh, fingers, which is approximately 18 inches. So that's a pretty sizable, I don't know the exact dimensions of this particular building that we're in, but it's probably pretty close. And it was eight feet high, this white linens. And everyone uh, built their tents around the outer place or the outer court of the tabernacle. Inside the outer courts was the tabernacle made of various kinds of skins and linens. And in it had various items, which we'll look at in a moment. But still in the outer court, could you or I go into it? No. You could go to the front and give your sacrifice to the priest who kept it, but that was all the access you would have as a rank-and-file member of the church in those days. Only the Levites could oversee it. And so you would walk and give your sacrifice to the, the priest who would take it, and then he would turn around, and almost immediately there in the entrance of the outer court would be this 8-foot-by-8-foot brazen altar. It had to be that big because they had to put a whole bull on it sometimes. That's where the, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings were given. Then you'd walk just a few feet beyond it, and there'd be this big pool of water. We don't know how exactly how big it is. The Bible doesn't say, but big enough for the priest to go through his ceremonial cleansings. This is all before you even get to the tabernacle. Are you picturing the otherness of God here displayed? That's what it's meant to uh, illustrate for us. Then you would go to the entrance of the tabernacle itself if you were a priest. Two sections, the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. In the first section, the rank-and-file priest could go and minister but he could never enter in past the veil that separated the Holy of Holies. Only the priest once a year could do that. Now, again, the text. Verse 2, the tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence called the holy place. So the first part of the room, on the left would be the lamp, and on the right would be the, the table with the bread of the presence. Now, what do they mean? They're details I don't have time to get into exhaustively here, but know this. On the left is a lampstand that had not like the modern menorah so much, but more of a tree that had seven different uh, winding arms that went around it and seven different pools of oil with wicks in them that always had to be kept burning, symbolizing the constant presence of God with his people in general. Then on the right would be the table with the 12 loaves, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, that were uh, called showbread, and they were kept fresh every Sabbath day. They'd be removed and replaced. The priest did all this. They kept the fires burning and the bread fresh. You remember the incident in, uh, in 1 Samuel, I believe, when David goes in and eats the showbread with his mighty men of valor. That's the bread they're referring to. They were hungry and they ate it. And the priest would do this too. They wouldn't throw it out after it was there for the whole week. They would eat it and then replace it with fresh bread, reminding them of the sustenance God gives his people. And so we have there just this place where the priest constantly worked to keep these things uh, maintenance or maintain. Let's continue. Verse 3. 
Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, before I go further, there's, it's easy to misunderstand what Hebrews is saying because the language doesn't translate well. We know as we read in Exodus that the golden altar of incense is actually part of the holy place, not the holy of holies. The reason why it's included saying having the altar of incense is that as you would walk then past the lampstand on the left, the table on the right, right ahead would be the altar of incense in the veil. And it's understood that it goes with the holy of holies, but it still could be ministered to by a rank and file priest because they're not entering into the veil. Why would they, the text say having a golden altar of incense? Most scholars believe because the incense that would burn, the purpose was that it would waft or would drift in past the curtain into the presence of God where the ark was. So in that sense, it's contained with the Holy of Holies. But any priest could still maintain the oil, the bread, and the incense. And it would waft in, representing the intercession going before the Lord in the prayers. They couldn't get in the presence of God and offer those, but it would drift on in, as that incense was regularly morning and evening kept up by the priests. So the job of the priest is to maintain that tabernacle, to maintain this mediatorial role, as it were, between the people and God. But even the high priest... The high priest himself could only enter that most holy of places once, once a year. But let's consider further. The Ark of the Covenant is there. Verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the, the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Why all those items? Those are pretty haphazard, you might think. They're not at all. In fact, two of them are very perishable and show the ongoing uh, blessing of the Lord to have institutions go on. One of them is imperishable. It's the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments that never change. They always were and they always will be. But in the case of the, of the manna, it rotted. After a day, you remember in the Old Testament, it rotted. So God had to supernaturally keep it up. And it was in the Ark of the Covenant, representing, again, God's sustenance and favor for his people. Then there was the rod that was Aaron's rod that continually budded supernaturally. It could have done this sitting in a dark place on its own. God supernaturally, while it was the time of the Levites, kept it budding, showing Aaron's rod giving fruit. The Levites would continue to be the priests. Then also the tablet of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments that are there listed, obviously showing the timelessness of God. The Ark of the Covenant ultimately meant God's presence with his people, but it also showed, brothers and sisters, how holy other God is how we must approach him with great reverence and awe. That never changes. It's who we approach him with, that is Christ, that makes us even able to stand in his presence. He's no different than he ever was. Still a consuming fire. In verse 5, more about the Ark of the Covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, goal, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now verse 5 tells us about the cherubim of glory. We know that two angels, and by the way, any picture of a warrior you have, a human warrior, even some mythical warrior, none compare with the actual warrior that is the cherubim, the one, the protector of God's glory. And two of these warrior angels are standing there with their wings outstretched facing each other like this, and then where their two hands meet is the mercy seat. This is the place, it's protecting God's glory, but by the sprinkling of blood on it once a year, we have access to God. The mercy seat. It doesn't take anything away from the presence of God, but we have the mercy seat formed out of the hands, the outstretched wings of the cherubim. The awful otherness of God 
aside from the blood. You can understand why it is in the Old Testament that when one reached up to put their hand on the ark to stop it from falling, they dropped dead immediately. You could see the great, great respect that the author of Hebrews has in saying, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Even though it was now obsolete and the transition had begun and the bud stopped budding and the manna probably started rotting, still, of these things we cannot speak in detail, the author says. It's sort of like this, and, and, and my uh, background, the older men in my dad's side of the family, when referring to someone who was desperately sick, would name the person and say, God bless them. And so you knew that person was sick if they say, God bless them. If that person died and was departed, and to this day it happens, people have been dead 20 years, when one of my, da my dad or his friends are talking about that person, they'll say, that Jimmy, God rest his soul, and then they'll go into the rest of the story. And I know that's been kind of mocked in Hollywood today, but they, they're serious. There's a reverend, this is a person we love, and they're parted. God rest his soul. And they stop and then go on to the story. That's how you know that they're dead. And they were loved. Well, as even the author of Hebrews is writing, saying, of these things we cannot speak. That's how off, awfully other God is. And that's the truth about God. God the all-terrible, as the hymn says. Of course this would be the case, and would be really so if we were not clothed in the blood of Christ. In fact, one of my favorite warnings about the presence of God, in particular the mercy seat from which the smoke would come, is to Aaron. Now, mind you, Aaron is not like a low-ranking priest. He's the first priest, the first high priest. And listen to the instructions the Lord gives to Moses regarding the ark. In Leviticus 16:2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. It's not that so he might not get removed or get demerits or come, fall sick or be disciplined. He'll die if he does this out of place. I don't care if it's Aaron. He'll die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Even when speaking of something that had become obsolete, the writer is so careful, so careful to show the respect that is necessary when referring to God's presence at all. Well, we see in this beautiful symbolism, this evocative symbolism, that there is still something limited in its effect. Look at verse 6. These preparations, all that we've spoken of, these, maintain, these ministries of maintenance that the priest must maintain, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. That means they constantly would have to do this, keeping up the oil, the bread, and the incense, performing their ritual duties, verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest goes, for he and he, but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. There's a sense in which we can already gather that there's an incomplete nature to the thing that the priest does. As beautiful as it is, it's not that he's bringing in the sins that you just thought of and you're confessing. It's just to cover the fact that you won't even, all the sins you're committing won't even come to your mind. You couldn't even recount them now if you wanted to. Just like Luther, who would pray Martin Luther for hours upon hours, and he'd get up after his prayers of confession, walk ten steps, and have to turn around and go back to confession because he remembered something he didn't confess. That's what the purpose of the altar was, is to cover that component of our, our sin. It's not complete by nature. It's constantly reminding us of our need for atonement. And that was the problem. It was limited in its effect. And noticeably so, unapologetically so. God's not saying sorry for the system he set up. He's saying you need this system as a precursor to how great the Redeemer is. You'd never know it unless I had this picture. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, that is, the Holy Spirit has orchestrated this system. By this, 
the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So we can't go into the presence of God until the first system, which is that system of rituals and so forth that says we need another mediator besides Jesus, essentially. Until that's gone, until we get that out of our minds, we can't go into the presence of God. We're hindered. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. The present age here is that age where the temple is still standing. And for those people who are being tempted to go back, the writer's saying, don't go back. And you're being hindered to have a full knowledge and experience of your relationship with God and Christ because you're hanging on to this old system that is meant to be obsolete. That's symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. Another beautiful picture that shows the limited effect of the old system. It couldn't perfect people's conscience. It could, could declare them not guilty. And before God, they have a reasonable assurance that God would provide a redeemer and pay for their sins. But they never walked around light in their feet, so to speak, or knowing that they're forgiven in a relational, adoptive way. They constantly had regular reminders of their sin and their need for its cleansing. Their conscience was always heavy. To perfect the conscience of the worshiper, these things could not do, which, by the way, tells us, gives us a brief insight into these last verses up to verse 14, that that's what the blood of Jesus does do. It gives us a purging of our conscience, a cleaning of our conscience. Verse 10, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. When is the time of reformation? The time of reformation here is specifically referring to the time of Christ's coming and fulfilling the blood sacrifice. There's, a, there's an unusual transitional period. Have you thought about this before? Jesus ascends and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The church starts being established in a new sense. The church had always been since the time God started redeeming people. But the church in its post-Christ uh, character is now forming. And people who are Gentile believers were pretty much picking this up relatively easy. But the Jewish believer would have trouble with all they'd have to put off. It'd just be difficult, at least. And so there's this span between the time this book is written and the time the temple is destroyed when it became a moot point. There are no more temples, that could, no more sacrifices that could be offered because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That which vanished away, referred to back in chapter 8. But there would be this time of transition that would be difficult for the Jewish believer as the temple sacrifices still go on. And the time of Reformation is the time when the apostles are living in applying the teaching of Jesus and transferring so many into this new era of the church's life. This is the time of Reformation. And please note, Reformation does not mean brand new. It means reforming something. It means bringing completion to it or a correct perspective on. That's why we call the 16th century activities the Reformation. It wasn't to make a new church. It was to reform the church, to take what that would, would become old and put new wineskins on it, so to speak, so that it would, be, it would be accurate again to the apostolic faith. So the time of Reformation is not a new religion, not a new covenant in the sense of brand new, but better, fulfilled, complete now. According to the arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So old covenant worship is important that we understand that it revealed the terrible nature and the high price of our sin. It revealed the need for a blood atonement. It prepared them for the coming of the Redeemer. But you were always and everywhere heavy laden with the reality of your sin. 
And even though inklings are given by David and others who confess and profess their sin, there's still the sense in which their sin isn't completely dealt with yet until the time of Christ. There's always this sense of something more needing to be done. In fact, I believe this is one of the many things working in the heart of Simeon when he receives Jesus, uh, a toddler at that point, and says, my eyes have seen the consolation of Israel. We can be free now. Not free from the nations, free from the bondage of our sin because of the blood of this, at that time, little child that would sometime, someday be spilt. This is what we're referring to when we refer to the efficiency of Christ's blood. We've seen the deficiency of the tabernacle system for all its beauty and significance, but let's look now at the redeeming and conscience-cleansing power of Christ's blood. There's much that can be said about the radical life-changing blood of Jesus, but its redeeming power and conscience-cleansing power is what this text focuses on. So let's look there. Look at verse 11. But, adversative now, totally different than what had come before, at least different in the sense of its holistic ability to save and to cleanse and to sanctify. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, the heavenly tent, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There's nothing secure about the old system. You can never apply secure or eternal to anything that happened there, not in practical terms. But with regard to Jesus entering into the holy place and offering himself, that is sure, secure, eternal. In fact, what we're talking about when we refer to the redeeming power of Christ's blood, we mean that he bought us. He bought you. He bought you from the, the debt that you should be paying, that I should be paying. Jonathan Edwards says it in a way that I could never dream of saying it. With great skill, he says it this way. God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation, and of his power and grace bestows the things purchased by the mediator, but he is the mediator. Our blessings are what we have by purchase. And the purchase is made of God. The blessings are purchased of him. And not only so, but God is the purchaser. Yes, God is both the purchaser and the price. For Christ, who is God, purchased these blessings by offering himself as the price for our salvation. That's the redeeming power of Christ's blood. Purchasing you. But it doesn't stop there. And brothers and sisters, if there's one thing I can just drive home... It's this component now that the text speaks of that makes things so much better, the side of the cross. If only we would grasp what it's saying. Because we have now, in the blood of Christ, the power to have our guilty consciences and rightfully guilty consciences cleansed so that we can be free. Look at verse 13 and verse 14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats, referring back to the old system, the blood of goats and bulls, and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from a dead works? Why? To serve the living God. Please see in the full depth of all this meaning, the Trinity's combined effort to save you. Look at the text closely in verse 14. The blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, an offering to God. The whole trinity involved in our redemption by the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Christ in Scripture means two profound things. Never lose this. 
we are redeemed or justified before the Father. That is, the blood of Christ grants us an acquittal of sorts. A one-time act of declaring us righteous called justification. This is bound up in this idea of the blood of Christ redeeming. But also, secondly, and as importantly, the blood of Christ is actively, that means now, actively involved in sanctifying us. I don't mean he's continually being sacrificed. I just mean that his blood is so dynamic that it continues constantly to change you. That's what is changing and sanctifying you. It's his blood and the work that produced that blood, that shed that blood, the work on the cross. It justifies us, but it also sanctifies us or is continually setting us apart in a new way. The blood of Christ was not only spilt to acquit us, but to reform us so we'd be different. Not so that you could just come to church on Sunday and just get a little bit of feeling less guilty and go home, be guilty again all week and come back for another uh, acquittal or assurance of pardon. And then you go on living this kind of defeated Christian life. That's not the intention of God. That's not his will for his people. He shed his blood so we would have that acquittal, but then we would go forth in freedom to serve him because we know before God, as filthy as we are, as vile as we are, we've been made clean. And now we can serve him because of the blood of Christ. We don't live in guilt anymore. We live in freedom, freedom to live and serve and worship our God. You've all seen it, that person on the news who was able to buy his or her freedom. They were clearly guilty, and you can all fill in the blank, clearly guilty. They committed the crime, yet the jury declares them not guilty. And they go on not guilty. But every interview you see with those individuals, they look guilty. They sound guilty. They look older. They look heavier laden because they've been declared not guilty, but they're they're just heavy laden with their sins, and it wears upon their face. I remember even a small child saying uh, to me one time, we were in a class, and they were acting up, and I had to correct the child, and the child, I asked the child to do something later, and the child said, kind of gave this sour look on their, on their little face, and said, you know, so sorry, aren't you going to do it? I'm asking, I want to, but I feel so bad. They had not gotten over the correction I had to give them, and rightfully, they were, they were wrong, but they felt so bad that it paralyzed them, and they could not serve. So many people today are paralyzed because they have not received the conscience-cleansing power of the blood of Christ in their life, and they still live in the past. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're in the midst of sin right now, it's God's love for you that allows him to conv- that causes conviction. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that sin that you committed five years ago, ten years ago, maybe a year ago. You've brought to the cross, it's cleansed, but you still live as a slave to it. You won't let it go, and you stay stuck, wheels not moving. You're not doing anything for the kingdom, all because of something else. Is that not in some way a confession of the lack of efficiency of the blood of Christ when we do that? He's saying that he's given us his blood, not only to redeem us, but to free us to serve him. How much more will the blood of Christ do this for us? John Piper says it so beautifully, and he says it very candidly and openly, in a way I probably wouldn't have said, but since he said it, I'll read it. Isn't it remarkable that when we spend an evening isolated in front of our computer, addicted, as it were, to work or pornography or video games. The issue at the end of it all is not the wonders of technology or science. The issue is, how can I come to God when I feel so dirty? He's talking about conscience. And how can I come to my wife and children with transparent love when my conscience is so defiled? And if you're not into computers, pick your own sin. TV, soaps, food, uh, uh, Romance novels, stock market pages, spirit-numbing music, you name it. Isn't it remarkable, Piper says, that the basic problems of life never change. The circumstances change, but the basic problems don't change. We are humans, and we have consciences that witness to our sinfulness and testimonies of real guilt. 
And we know that what keeps us away from God is not dirty hands or soiled clothes or distance from the, an altar or a priest. What keeps us from God is real sin echoing in a condemning conscience. And God, my brothers and sisters, frees you from this by his blood. So go and do it no more. That, that's the effect it has on us. When we know it's true, we then can walk in it. Because we're not walking under condemnation. We're walking in response to someone who set us free. Why would we not want to obey? Luther, Martin Luther says, go and do as you please. Well, what pleases you now in Christ? What he has done. It's totally different than what pleased you before. And that's the cleansing blood of Christ on our conscience. And it's the very thing that will set the church free to be the church. It's a church that will honestly confess its sin and its vileness and at the same time recognize that we will not be held captive by it any longer. Satan has no power over us and the blood of Christ covers this and moves us on to newness of life which calls people to the same redemption that we've been called to. That's the job of the church and it happens by the blood of Christ, not by a great message that I can give, not by some commentary or some other word that some great scholar can give us. It's the blood of Christ that does this. This is the power of the words the last words in the scripture that talk about the blood. 43 times the blood of Christ is referenced in the New Testament, but my favorite is the last time it's referenced in Revelation 12, verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is the blood that has been applied to us. And I just ask you the simple question, are you serving God, my dear brother or sister, no matter what level it is? He's called us all to serve him, to worship him, from the most basic level of your personal devotional life to him to the, the level of serving your family, serving other individuals you come in contact with, the church, volunteering, getting involved with serving Christ by serving others. Are you serving God, or is your conscience still binding you? That's the question only you can answer. I conclude by reminding you the vivid picture of the tabernacle as it relates to Christ and how much better Christ is. For all the beauty that's in the tabernacle setup, the tabernacle itself, if you remember in John, Jesus Christ came, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, literally tabernacled among us. The lampstand, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The table and the bread, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. The golden altar of incense, which represents intercession. Jesus prays prayers of intercession now even for us. The veil guarding the holy of holies. That's the body of Christ broken for us when it becomes the temple veil and is torn in two at his, at his death on the cross. The high priest of Aaron, once a year, never finished. The high priest Jesus, once for all, totally sufficient for all he represented. The blood of bulls and goats, never able to take away sin. Guilt always present where the blood of Christ, what can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In one of my favorite hymns, William Cooper, a man who was acquainted well with deep and dark depression, a constant guilty conscience haunted him. But the Lord gave him grace at many moments of his life, and he penned some of the most powerful grace-ridden words I've ever read that have to do with the blood of Christ. He says, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. 
Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved, what? To sin no more. Let us pray. Lord, the Apostle Paul calls it the purchasing blood, the redeeming blood. Peter declares that the shedding of the Lord Jesus' blood to be the very price of our salvation. It is also the justifying blood and the peacemaking blood. Its efficacy does not end with our salvation, however. For, Lord, it is clear that it is also the sanctifying blood that cleanses us to serve you. There is infinite and eternal power in the blood of Jesus Christ, and we praise you for this, Lord, for it is the blood of the everlasting covenant. We pray this in his name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as a response to what we have heard, let's turn to 524. Very poignant words in the first two verses of thy works, not mine, O Christ. 524. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs> 